So this morning we're going to be looking at two stories and two stones. So we're going to start off with our, uh, with our first story in uh, Matthew eight twenty-eight to 34. And let's read it. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. They lived in a cemetery and were so violent that no one could go through that area. They began screaming at him, Why are you interfering with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance, so the demons begged, If you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen flew to the nearby, I'm sorry, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town telling everyone what happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. So there's these two men, and it's, 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 it's a very dark scene. There's these two men, and they live, as the passage says, they live in a cemetery. Um, they're demon-possessed, so whether they were too freaky to live in the town and they were cast out or whether they chose to live in the midst of, of death and darkness in the cemetery, we don't know. But they lived in the cemetery, these two men. They were possessed by demons. Um, the cemetery was, was nearby a town because we find out later in the passage that the townspeople came out. So um, it was close and it was most likely a cemetery for that town where they, they buried their dead. Um, and the passage doesn't say this, but I would imagine that the people from the town avoided that place, particularly because these men were there, and they were very scary, and they were possessed by demonic spirits. And you can imagine um, parents telling their kids, you know, like, don't go by the old cemetery, you know? And the kids maybe like gone by the old cemetery, you know, because kids do those kinds of things and kind of watching these guys from a distance and seeing their strange behavior. But anyway, it was, it was like a freak show kind of thing, right? It was a dark, dark thing that was going on with these guys. Um, you know, and, and even as, I, as I've thought about it, you know, we have, even in our own town, people who we view in that sort of way, kind of people who roam the streets of Lebanon. People who we say, oh, you, do you know the guy who does X, Y, or Z? Oh, yeah, I saw him down on Cumberland Street. Or, oh, yeah, he walks by the church. Or, oh, yeah, he hangs off the bench by the library. Or, I saw him in the library. That's where he spends all his time. You know, we have these people um, in, in our community. Uh, I was in the church office, uh, this was a couple weeks ago, and I heard this yelling outside. And I was like, what is going on? And I walked into the lobby, and I looked out, and there was just one guy Looking in, you know those poster, old movie poster cases that are under the marquee that we have some artwork in outside? He was looking at his reflection, and he was yelling at his reflection, and just screaming and screaming and having an argument with his reflection, and it was vulgar. And, um, and you know, just about having to move to Florida, and because somebody this and somebody that, and there was all these words thrown in. I don't even know if I knew what half of them meant. And, and it was just like, wow. And then he stopped. And he just kept walking down the street. And so, so this is not, you know, unheard of in the realm that we as a body move and live and have our place here in Lebanon. So Jesus comes onto the scene. He, uh, he comes from the other side of the lake. And the demons acknowledge him immediately. They call him son of God. 
So that's the first acknowledgement. They, they name him. They know exactly who he is. They know exactly his power and authority. And then after they name him, they say, look, if you're going to cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. So they, they know his work. They know the work that Jesus is about and what he does, that, that, that he is the son of God and he does things like cast demons out of people. And he has that kind of authority and that kind of power to do that. And so these demons acknowledge him. And that's, that's what Jesus does. He simply says, all right, go. And the demons go into the herd of pigs. The herd of pigs go over the cliff. Now there's these herdsmen there watching. Now, it's likely that these herdsmen were, you know, watching. They weren't their pigs necessarily, but the town's pigs. Um, it would have been agricultural as far as their economy was concerned. And so there is, whenever I would read this passage before, I would think, oh, there's, you know, like 15 pigs that these guys are watching. But I don't know. That's just what I pictured in my head. I'm not saying that you did. But we're talking probably hundreds or thousands of pigs um, likely the livelihood of many, if not the whole undergirding financial capacity of that town. Um, and so the herdsmen are doing their job protecting the pigs and making sure they get fed and they're grazing. And all of a sudden, their job ends, right? All of a sudden, the pigs are gone. But they've seen everything that's happened. They've seen, like, now these crazy dudes aren't crazy anymore. And they run to the town to tell the townspeople, not, oh my goodness, you're going to kill me because the pigs went over the cliff, but, oh my goodness, Jesus just showed up and cast demons out of those crazy guys, and you know who I'm talking about, and, and they're different now. They're different. The demons, the demons aren't in them anymore. So immediately the townspeople are going, what? Those people, I know those crazy people, they can't possibly be healed, right? Because crazy people never change. Um, and so they come out, and they see these changed men. They see the evidence of changed life, and they see the absence of their livelihood. And their immediate response is, they beg Jesus to leave. We don't know for sure if they really got who he was. The demons did. But these people missed him on, on multiple levels. They, they missed him. Maybe they knew he was the son of God and they wanted him gone. Or maybe they didn't have a clue. They were just worried about how am I going to make money tomorrow? How am I going to put food on my table tomorrow? Because my livelihood is gone. Um, don't be too quick to judge the townspeople. Um, Dennis and I actually had a conversation about this earlier. Dennis is a pig farmer. So I said, Dennis, if you lost your whole herd of pigs, your livelihood, for the sake of two souls, is that worth it? And, and we had this interesting conversation about, about that, you know, and like, wow, it was really challenging, at least I felt that it was, to think of, okay, c- are we okay with Jesus taking everything from us for somebody that maybe we don't even know? Am I okay with Jesus taking all of my income to save two crazy people in Lebanon who I don't know? Am I okay with that? I I don't know. It it causes a wrestling inside of me. I'll be honest. I want to say, well, of course I would. But but I wrestle with that flesh and the spirit and and those things. Um, So don't be too quick to judge them. Um, 
John 6, our second story. John 6. Uh, we're not going to read all of this. I'm going to tell this story. It's a story that many of you have probably heard. Um, so Jesus feeds, Scripture says, 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish um, that this one kid had. Um, he actually probably fed more like ten to 15,000 people, right? He multiplied this food miraculously. It wasn't like he was just like, poof, and more food appeared. It was just more like he started breaking it and serving it and just through that process, like, there was just enough to hand out to everybody. And it was amazing, and the people knew it. Like, the people saw what Jesus had done, because in in, uh, 6.14, if you see it there, if you have your Bible open, it says, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. They saw the miracle. They saw what he did with the fish and the loaves, and they identified him. Surely he is the prophet. Surely he is the Messiah, the one that we've been expecting. So they had this great day. Um, That night, Jesus um, heads to the other side of the lake. And I I don't know if this is a theme in scripture or not. It seems like it. But whenever Jesus crosses a lake, people go crazy. I mean, the two stories we're looking at today, it's like he crossed a lake. And now here he crosses the lake. uh, And people just get, it just, people lose track of him. And they're wondering what he's up to. And it's, you know, they're just confused and they want to be with him, but they want things of him that he can't, doesn't want to necessarily give to them at that time. Anyway, so the people realize that Jesus isn't there and they put two and two together and they realize that there's some boats missing and the disciples are gone. And so they're like, ah, oh, I bet Jesus is on the other side. So the next day they go to the other side of the lake um, and they approach Jesus, same people that just saw this miracle that he had done the day before. And Jesus knows what they want. So he speaks first and he says, um, I know why you're here. Um, You're here because I fed you yesterday. So you probably want me to feed you today. You're seeking food. And um, then he says, but you know what you need to be seeking is you need to be seeking the son of man. That's what you need. You think you need food. That's what you got yesterday. That's what you want today. But what you need is the son of God. What you need is me. And then the people respond, we want to do good works too. What? Are they, are they listening? Like what, what does that mean? They want to do miracles like Jesus? Uh, maybe. But instead of saying like, oh, oh, okay, we'll seek you, Jesus. They just say, we want to do good works too. And Jesus in his love and grace kind of uses their language and brings them back around and says, okay, well then, the, the work that you can do is to believe in, in me, believe in the one that the Father has sent. So they th- consider this and go, okay, cool. We'll believe in you as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, but do a miracle for us. Hmm. In fact, it would be really cool if you did a miracle with food. Moses brought down manna from heaven. Do that and we'll believe. Now, I am not Jesus. Okay, I just wanted to lay that down in case there wasn't any confusion. But if I were, this is what I would say. Are you kidding me? Where were you yesterday? I just fed 15,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish, and you forgot already 24 hours later, and now you want, you're asking me to do a miracle with food? And by the way, it wasn't Moses who brought down the manna from heaven. It was my dad. So, huh, but I'm not Jesus, right? So Jesus says, 
you want me to do a miracle with food. Well, actually, um, just to set the record straight, this is like the amplified version, the Matt Hirsch amplified version. It, 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 it wasn't Moses who did that. It was, it was my father. And sure, he used, he used Moses. Um, but my father was the one who brought that, that food down from heaven for you. And um, the food that you really need is, is me. Like, what you need to do is you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Which just sounds weird, right? That's what you need. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so they kind of mauled, jeez, what is this? What is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. And um, they kind of, there's some conversation, and Jesus says it again. And he says it again. You know, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. So he's answering the question that they, that he had posed to them earlier. Like, you don't need to seek food, the kind of food you're thinking of. You need to seek eternal life. Let me tell you how you can seek that. Here I am. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Then you can have eternal life. And they're still, they're wrestling with this and they're having a hard time with this. And then Jesus says to them in uh, verse 61, um, is it verse 61? Yeah, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. Now, realize in this passage, there's like this larger group of disciples, these followers of his, and then there's the inner core of disciples, okay? So there's a large group of this, th- these people that were following him and had followed him to the other side of the lake. Jesus says to them, does, does this offend you? Has what I have said offend you? The word offend there in the Greek is skandaliso. Scandaliso, which sounds like our word scandal. And what it means is um, to put a stumbling block in front of somebody um, upon which they may trip or fall. To place a stumbling block in front of somebody upon which they may trip or fall over. Have I offended you? Have I placed something in front of you that, that you can't get around that's going to cause you to stumble or fall that's impeding the path that you thought you were on. It's impeding your thought process, the trajectory of your life. Did I, did I cause you to stumble with what I said? Um, is it scandalous? Um, and then the whole thing plays out and a bunch of people leave. Most of them leave. His core disciples stay. And Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where, where else would we go? Where else would we go? So what, what would you do? What would you do? Would you have kicked Jesus out of town for messing up your entire livelihood and financial stability? Um, would you have um, invited him in to your home? Um, would you have, um, as the, the literal translation of the eating my flesh is, is, comes out, would you have gnawed on Jesus? This isn't like, he didn't use metaphorical language. He actually used the physical just gnawing, crunching, get in there, get with me, get intimate with me language, actual eating language. Would you have gnawed on his flesh um, in pursuit of deeper intimacy with him? Or would you have left? Um, these are scandalous choices 
that Jesus poses to his people. They're very scandalous. Um, Jesus, he trips us up. Um, and it's, it's, and I, I wrestle with this, and it's okay to wrestle with scripture. I, I don't think Jesus is out to be a riddler. You know, like if you uncrack the code, then you can come into the kingdom. It's just that his words are just so truth. They're 100% pure and true. And we just don't operate from that level. I mean, sin is in our lives. Like, we do our best. But we miss these things. We miss these stories that Jesus says to us. We, we miss the big picture. We miss the little picture. Um, but it doesn't compute for us because we don't necessarily always get the purity of the truth in which he's speaking. Um, what if one of the townspeople in the Matthew chapter 8 story, the first story that we looked at, was like, um, he just took the demons out of those guys. They're different. They're really different. I'm not afraid of them anymore. He's somebody special. He, he may be the son of God. I don't have my pigs anymore. But if he's the son of God, maybe I want to invite him to my house since nobody else seems to be doing that. I'm going to take a risk on this one. So maybe somebody responds that way. That's not in the word. I understand that. Jesus has grace for those that have that kind of faith. What would Jesus do in that situation? I don't know. Maybe Jesus would, through the Spirit, bless him with another gift through which this man could make money or this woman could make a livelihood and their family could survive. Um, Maybe not. Maybe they would just suffer for a period of time. But I would have to think that Jesus would show up in some way in that person's life because of their response to his love for these two broken men that are now healed on, on some level. They're not demon-possessed anymore. And to just go all in with Jesus at that point in time and then just figure out what you're going to do about your finances tomorrow. I don't know. That's, that takes faith. Or what if in the passage um, where he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, what if there was somebody there who was like, I don't understand what he's saying. He's using language about eating him. And I know what it means to eat something. I saw him do the miracle yesterday. That was amazing. He's claiming to be the son of God, and I have every reason to believe that he is. So I'm just going to go gnaw on him right now. So he goes over and he starts biting Jesus' wrists or his ankle, right? Because that's the language that he knows. He's just being raw and barbaric in his faith, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 my son. Let me explain to you. I can, I can see you have this desire to know me. Let, me. let me teach you, and I can see that you're teachable. I think Jesus would have grace for somebody who would try to bite his ankle if, if that were the case, right? Because their, their heart is, is lined up where their heart should be lined up to. But, but those are scandalous places to go. And those ex- that, that exposes us. It might make us look like a fool. It might make us look stupid. But it is Jesus. But, but it is Jesus. 
Um, Jesus shows us a ton of grace when we have that, that kind of faith. Um, when Jesus shows up in our lives, make no mistake that, that he wrecks us. Like when he shows up, like when we actually receive Jesus. Not like how these townspeople received him, not how all the people that followed him across the lake to get some food from him received him. But when we actually receive the fullness of Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the cross, the blood, all of that, the gospel, it wrecks our lives. It remakes us. It remakes the thing that we've made of ourselves. You know, we've fashioned ourselves in a certain way and then Jesus comes along and we receive that crazy message and then he changes us um, if, if we allow that kind of interaction to happen. Two stories, two stones, stumbling stone. Go to Isaiah 8. 13 to 15. Isaiah 8, 13 to 15. Prophet Isaiah says, Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, now Israel and Judah, God's people, right? He's talking about God's people here. We're God's people, right? He's talking about God's people. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble. Similar to what we saw in the Greek. Skandaliso. An offense, right? An offense that will make people stumble. He will be a stone that makes people stumble. A rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, God's people, he will be a trap and a snare. Many, many will stumble and fall, never to rise again. They will be snared and captured. And, and this is the spiritual principle that's playing out in these two passages. And it doesn't just play out in this passage. I mean, Jesus is making people stumble all the time in the New Testament when he places his life before them. Here I am. Here is my gospel. Here is what I am living. Here is my cross. Here is my blood. And people stumble. He becomes an offense. This is what happened in our two stories. So Jesus shows up in all of his truth, in all of the fullness of who he is, and all of his divinity. He heals some people. He makes a bunch of food out of a little bit of food. He kills a bunch of pigs. He says some really weird stuff about eating them and drinking them. And um, the people experienced him in those places. And they stumbled over him. They were offended. He was an offense to them. They were offended by his words, by his actions, by his presence. They asked him to leave or they left to remove themselves from his presence. He was an offense to them. He was a stumbling stone to them. Um, has anybody ever been walking on a sidewalk and they've tripped over an uneven sidewalk? Everybody, right? Okay. Um, what is the first thing that you do when you trip on an uneven sidewalk? Somebody say it really loud. You what? I can't hear you. 
Okay, you leave. Okay, okay. You laugh. What else? Yes! You look around to see if anybody else saw you, right? Because you feel stupid. And you want to act like you're not, right? Maybe I'm the only one that gets this feeling. Do you get like that warm feeling that comes over you? Like when you get a test or a pop quiz in school and you're like, <gasps> so you stumble and you're just like, oh my goodness, like I'm out of control. And we get this feeling and we kind of look around and like maybe there's windows up here of houses and you look, is anybody looking out their window? Did anybody see that? And you try to just be like, it's all good. It's all good. I didn't just stumble. Are you blind? No, I didn't stumble. What are you talking about? But we feel vulnerable. We feel naked. We feel foolish. We feel out of, out of control. Jesus is this kind of stumbling stone to us. We feel that way. Jesus isn't trying to shame us. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that sidewalk doesn't have feelings, but it might be trying to shame us. Jesus is not trying to shame us. But he is trying to take control from us that we think we have it all together. So we, we stumble, we look around to see who saw us, and then we try to like do these weird things with our body language, just like, yeah, that's cool, you didn't see anything here. And then we kind of you know, pull ourselves together and dust off anything that's on our clothing, and we just keep walking. Um, maybe some of you have had the experience of wearing a shoe to Cornerstone some morning when it rained, and the rain gets on the, uh, those bricks under the marquee. Has that, have any of you done that under our marquee before? I have. I have a pair of shoes that I do that with. Be careful. Um, this is your warning. Uh, I feel that. Like, and I look around. Is anybody at the insurance office across the street, you know, coming out or going in? Um, I get that tense feeling, and I just kind of act like I'm cool, and I go in to, and do my thing. But I don't feel that way. It's all, it's all fake. Um, we don't. We, want, we don't want to be seen as having lost control over ourselves. Um, Jesus makes us stumble. We lose control. The thing is, what do we do in that place when his life, his gospel, his truth, his blood, his cross makes us trip? Um, we're exposed, we're uncomfortable, we're naked. Um, we're no longer in control for sure at that point. Um, so at that point, what do we do? Do we do the looking around, <laughs> laugh it off, you know, keep going on and just act like nothing happened? Or do we, do we invite him into town? Or do we bite his ankle? What do we do? What do we do? Um, Isaiah 28. Flip a few pages. Isaiah 28, verse 16. This is our second stone, cornerstone. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone. Where? Zion. Some people, your Bibles might say Zion. Some people might say Jerusalem. He's placing it where his people are. Same, same, same place, right, as the earlier passage in Isaiah. You know, he was among his people. He was talking about this stumbling stone being placed in front of his people. Now he's talking about a cornerstone being placed in front of his people. And this is, this is Jesus that the prophet is talking about. Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. 
Whoever believes need never be shaken. Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. When, when we trip over the stone, same stone, Jesus, stumbling stone, cornerstone. Not stumbling stone, Jesus, and cornerstone, Jesus. Stone, Jesus. We may trip over that stone and be exposed and be naked and vulnerable, and that's okay. When we trip over that, what do we do? Do we start building on that cornerstone? Or do we cast that stone out of town? What do we do? Um, Jake, come on up here. Let's uh, shed some light. I practiced carrying this up here this morning, so I knew if I could actually lift it up. Jake, you grab a chair. Um, So we want to let the scripture now shine like a bright light into our lives, practically speaking. You have a seat there, Jake. That's fine. Um, So I think for us, for, for, for God's people, Jesus became a big stumbling stone when the kingdom got opened up to Gentiles. That was their big stumbling stone. Like, they don't deserve it because they're dirty Gentiles. And so that's where Jesus became a stumbling stone to, to God's people, was with the Gentiles, and that the kingdom doors flying open like that. I think for us, that thing is, is broken relationship. Um, never is, is uh, Jesus more of a stumbling stone for us than in broken relationship. Um, as believers. Now remember, like Jesus is a stumbling stone to God's people. We're God's people. He can be a stumbling stone to us. He can definitely be a stumbling stone to us. Like we can believe in him as the disciples did around the lake in John 6 and still stumble over him and desert him, right? So um, we offend people. We receive offense from people. We refuse to give forgiveness because people may not deserve it. Uh, We refuse to receive forgiveness because we want to hold on to offense because it places us in this fake place of empowerment that puts us over the person who offended us. Like, well, I'm better than them, so I want to continue to hold on to this offense because I don't want to forgive. And because if it's forgiven and Jesus takes it away, then I actually can't look at them and say they're a bad person. And then I don't feel good about myself because I'm not better than them anymore. Right? So there's all these, these things that happen in the middle of broken relationship. Um, God created us in his image, and one of the key components of that is relationship. He was in relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Intimate, deep relationship. He was a personal God. He has personhood. We are persons. So this, nat- this component of who we are as being in relationship is huge. It's, it's huge. I mean, so much of our lives revolve around relationship. And there's a lot of broken relationship in our lives. A lot of it we might ignore. A lot of it we um, might not even be paying attention to because we don't even care about the people around us. There's just all kinds of brokenness. Now, um, it is very offensive that Jesus um, healed these two demon-possessed men and killed the town's livelihood off. It is also very offensive that he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
And I think it is just as offensive to us. When you hear offensive, don't hear wrong, okay? It is just as offensive to us that Jesus would say, I can be in the middle of this broken relationship. This is not, Jake and I don't have a broken relationship, okay? This is just for a picture. Um, That Jesus could come between this and bring healing. We don't want to hear that a lot of times because we've got plenty of reasons of our own to not actually go to this place. Well, even if I forgive them, they're not really going to forgive them because I know how bad of a person they are. And, you know, on and on and on we go. It is offensive to us that Jesus places himself here and says, I can bring healing. My blood from the cross comes between two parties, whatever, two groups of people, husband and wife, father and son, mother and daughter, mother and son, daughter and father, friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, co-workers, whatever relationship it is. And he says, no, no, here I am. Stumble, stumble over me. Stumble, be offended by my place in this relationship. Be offended. We argue with Jesus. No, you cannot heal that. That person's done way too much. You don't even know, oh, it's so, if Matt, if you heard my story, if you heard my story, you you would understand why Jesus isn't going to heal this relationship over here. Because it's bad. I, I believe that. I do. But, but Jesus died for that too. doesn't mean the pain's not there. It means that he can bring healing in a whole way, right? So I can be cool with Jesus over here in this part of my life, and I can be cool with Jesus over here in this part of my life, and I can be cool with Jesus right here in this part of my life. But, but this right here, Jesus, this is just going to work out. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not willing to, I, I'm stumbling over this, Jesus, because you, you just, you don't get it, Jesus. And we stumble. And we fall in this place. The question isn't if we're going to stumble and fall. We are. The question is, can we, or even I, we can sit in this place and one may say no to Jesus and one may say yes. Right? That, that happens. Um, do we say yes to the stumbling block? Do we say yes to the vulnerability that this takes the openness, the confession, um, the admitting, the receiving, and the giving of forgiveness, um, the confession of wrongdoing, the reception of confession of wrongdoing, um, all of that. Can we do that? Can we find ourselves in that vulnerable, naked place right after we trip when we look around to see if anybody's looking? and we feel so exposed and weird, are we okay in that place? And are we, are we willing to move from the stumbling block to the stumbling stone to the cornerstone and begin building on that same stone, 
same, same Jesus. Different function. I'm going to trip you up now be naked in front of me and naked in that brokenness with the other party. But can you now get up and allow me into that vulnerability and build on this other stone? Which, what does it say in Isaiah 28? It's a firm and tested stone. Um, Whoever believes need never be shaken. Um, It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Or are we gone by that point? Are we out of the picture? Are we saying, no, Jesus, I'll live with you up here. I'll live with you over here, but not not here because I don't like stumbling. I don't like vulnerability, and I don't like nakedness, and I don't like that pain, frankly. Um, my shins hurt, Jesus, but can we be there? Thanks, Jake. Um, Romans 9, 30 to 33. So what we have here in Romans 9, uh, 33, is that um, the author of Romans combines these two Isaiah passages into one. Takes, uh, takes the, I don't have them written up there. Takes the Isaiah 28 passage, takes the Isaiah 8 passage, and puts the two stones together. And you might have footnotes in your Bible that indicate that. And he says, uh, actually, let's read it. Let's read it from the bulletin. Um, it's on the back of the bulletin in the top right-hand corner. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Okay, that's from the Isaiah 8. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, that's the reference to the cornerstone that comes out of Isaiah 28. Scripture brings those two pieces together for us. Same, same stone. Same stone. How do we interact with Jesus? Same Jesus. But how do we interact in that place? Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, okay, now the stone has life. It's not an it. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in that stumbling stone will not be put to shame because the stumbling stone is a cornerstone. Um, I've been thinking about this. This is just a picture that has been in my mind for a while related to these concepts of Jesus and stone. Um, It's just helpful, I think. Imagine a big stone, like as big as a huge building, like like a big city skyscraper. Take like a city skyscraper, fold it in half, and kind of connect those two pieces, and you have this big, kind of big, massive stone. And it falls out of the sky, and it lands into a lake. And when it hits that lake, it's going to push the water out, at least for, for a moment. It's going to create this big splash, because the ro- this huge rock is just going to sink to the bottom. It's going to sink to the lake bed. Um, and so if you could freeze frame that picture, huge rock falls into huge lake, huge water is just splashed out, and take a picture of that. So the rock is sitting on the lake bed. The water is in the process of getting pushed out, and you can see the lake bed exposed. And, like, that's what this does if we allow, is that it exposes the core of who we are in that way. The bottom of a lake bed is nothing pretty. 
um, trash, perhaps, mud, silt, um, real soggy plant life, broken sticks, um, maybe some dead fish, uh, different things. It's, it's kind of yucky, right? It, that's the kind of level of exposure that the gospel brings to our internal parts when it hits us like that. It's that level of exposure. Now, if you stop that freeze frame and let everything kind of settle back down, sure, some of the water is going to get pushed out. But, you know, that water is going to come back into the lake, and then you just have this lake with this rock half-submerged sticking out of the water, and we just go on looking looking pretty. But the gospel, the gospel exposes, like, can we live in that vulnerable place of that freeze frame where, like, the lake bed is exposed, where our hearts are exposed, our lives are exposed? Um, that is the force at which the gospel should should hit us. That is the force at which it's intended to impact and change and transform and re remake our lives. Team, you can come on up, um, and let's uh, let's pray. Um, Jesus, your gospel is is powerful. It is really really powerful. You come with a ton of power and authority, and and that. What, what that is, like your life and your story, your gospel, your cross, everything that you embody, truth, it just, it exposes us at our very core, uh, particularly in the context of, of relationship. It, it can just really call us out. And Jesus, we stumble. We stumble over you. Um, we may really want, we may really want healing in a context of a relationship, um, even if even if the other party isn't wanting healing, we may really want to see that kind of transformation. But there's something that keeps us from believing. But you're in John six. You said, "Do this work. You want to do a great work. Do this work. Believe, believe in the one that the Father has sent." And so, Lord, we we beg you this morning that we could believe in the one that the Father has sent, who is, who is stumbling stone, who trips us up and makes us vulnerable and exposed and out of control, but then who stays in that place and says, now build, build on me, like build on this foundation, build on this truth. There is nothing, there is nothing, no brokenness anywhere in any crevice of this world, in any relationship, whether it's between you know, spouses or friends or brothers and sisters in Christ or countries. There is no interpersonal brokenness. Jews and Gentiles, that your death, your life, your blood, your cross, your life, your gospel does not cover, does not heal. Like your blood covers all of that. You died on the cross, for all of those things. So God, yeah, let us just see your son, Jesus, the Messiah, in all of his power, in all of his glory, in all of his life, as stumbling stone, and then as cornerstone. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, the Romans 9 passage, when it talks about the rock, the stone of stumbling, um, the word is scandalon. 
which is very similar to when Jesus said in um, the John 6 passage, have I offended you, scandaliso, same, same form of the word. Have I offended you? Have I caused you to stumble over the stumbling stone? So you can see that connection there. Um, the, the, key, the key piece for us that I want us to leave is, are we able to relinquish control that the stumbling stone forces us to relinquish when we stumble? Can we relinquish control? And that control may be our mind, our assessment of, of what Jesus is capable of or not capable of, um, our assessment of what actually somebody deserves, what we deserve, um, whether that's forgiveness, release of offense, whatever, whatever those things are. Can we relinquish the control that that, that stumbling stone requires of us? Or do we just pull ourselves together and go on in other places of our life, just segmenting Jesus in that? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that your, your nature as rock, as stone, of stumbling and cornerstone would be very real to us as a body at Cornerstone. We are a, a lively people. We are alive in you. And we all have these lively relationships going on around us in all kinds of places and all sorts of ways um, that may transcend um, country. It may, it may be just in our own home. God, we, we all also carry um, pain, hurt, suffering, offense, shame in, in those relationships. And Jesus, you, you are the one that we can build, rebuild those relationships on. Like you are the one that has already healed the brokenness there. God, allow us to take our hands off of the thing, to give you control, to give you control. So to Cornerstone, may we, we, may we be ones who are fully ready to surrender to the stone, to Jesus, to the Messiah, when he exposes the hurt, the pain, and the brokenness. May we have courage, Jesus. May we have faith that comes from you, that is imparted from your spirit to stay in that place and receive the healing that you want to bring. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.